0: So we have been kind of teasing a big special announcement on Twitter and on our Instagram page, and we are finally really super, super excited to finally announce that we have a third co-host coming, jumping onto the uh, End of Sport podcast team, Um, Johanna Mellis. Johanna, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Wow. I'm super excited to be here. Um, so I just wanted to sort of say a few things about sort of who I am, a little bit of background and things like that. Um, so as Derek said, I'm Dr. Johanna Mellis. I teach history, specifically world and European history at Ursinus College, which is outside of Philadelphia. Um, I te- Like I said, I teach classes on world and European history, but also oral history, sport history, Um, a little bit of public history, um, history of colonialism, kind of like whatever they need me to teach, I essentially teach. (laughs) Um, My research, which you'll hear more about in my episode, um, is about sport during the Cold War in the Eastern Bloc. And I focus on um, Hungary in particular, but the Eastern Bloc more generally, and sort of communist Hungary's role within the International Olympic Committee with the international sport community and Hungarian athletes' experiences. In the Cold War sports system. Um, Now in terms of um, the podcast, um, I'm really excited to be able to add um, more of a historical background, not to say that Derek and Nathan have done a great (laughs) job of this because they have with interviewing many very um, prestigious historians so far, Um, but I'm really excited to add more of my perspective and kind of ask more of those um, historical um, questions, which you'll certainly hear lots from me in the episodes. Um, but also questions about like how is sport harming and exploiting people in different ways, such as sexual harassment, but also NCAA sport, club sport, um, things like that. So I'm really excited to be able to add that to the sport. And um, to sort of end on a personal note, um, I am especially interested in, in joining the podcast because I've always I've been kind of looking for a way to kind of talk to more people about my research, but also learn more about sport in a less kind of academic environment that requires less academic writing and research for me. <laughs> um, as I think most of you listeners know, that takes up so much over time. And so this is sort of a more informal and engaging way to in- interact with a wider variety of people. Um, and this is all to say that I'm absolutely thrilled to join you guys on the podcast, but also speak to like the fantastic guests that you guys have had and future guests and things that so i'm i'm really excited to be here
0: yeah we both nathan and myself are super excited to see the team grow um and as dr Mellis mentioned add different perspectives so johanna we're super excited to welcome you on board and we can't wait to uh to release tons of awesome content to our listeners
1: cool me too
2: folks and welcome to another episode of the end of sport podcast uh my name is nathan Coleman lamb and i'm here with derek silva hi derek hey how are you doing i'm good and i'm not going to talk for long here because we have an episode that you and i both uh frankly are just delighted with in general and we think it speaks for itself um so not much more preamble is needed except as per usual please follow the show on uh twitter instagram at end of sport pod uh Please rate and review on iTunes, etc. Subscribe, listen, uh, and please enjoy this interview with Johanna Mellis, uh, an assistant professor at Ursinus College and historian uh, who really covers all the bases for us today. Enjoy. Johanna Mellis is assistant professor of history at Ursinus College where she teaches on modern European history, oral history, and sports history. She is the author of the recent scholarly articles, From Defectors to Cooperators, the Impact of 1956 on Athletes, Sport Leaders, and Sport Policy in Socialist Hungary, and Contemporary European History, and Cold War Politics and the California Running Scene in the Journal of Sport History, both of which we will certainly link in the show notes. Johanna. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm pleased to be here.
2: It's a real pleasure for us to have you too, um, because this is going to be, I think, a different kind of conversation than we've had before. It's going to be probably more historical in scope, but also we've built ourselves as this sort of podcast, uh, especially, that is trying to provide a sort of critique of capitalist sport. But we haven't really done any of that kind of comparative work of, of thinking through um, what sport might look like in other contexts, and certainly this is a complicated question we're going to get get into, like what that Hungarian context is in the 50s and 60s especially, because of course, like thinking through like what socialism means, we have these actually existent historical uh, examples of socialism, but that's not necessarily a sort of idealistic version of what socialism might be in a future sense, but it's still really interesting, I think, to explore the contours of these different modes of production. But before we get into that, and you can see how excited I am to get into that because I just launched in already, uh, we got to ask you how the pandemic is treating you in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania.
1: So first off, I really appreciate the question. I appreciate that you've been asking that of everybody um, because I've just learned so much about what everyone else is going through. Um, So what's been sort of interesting here in that um, the virus hit um, outside of Philadelphia pretty early Um, especially on the Eastern coast. And we had the county had a high number of cases very early on. And so actually our county was one of the first to go on full lockdown in March. Um, And for that, that for me was like at the end of my spring break at our Sinus College. Um, And so we have been like full on lockdown mode pretty much since then. Um, But my husband and I are pretty lucky. Uh, We are what some people call dinks which are dual income <laughs> <laughs> dual income no kids um so in that respect we're extremely lucky lucky we're both healthy we've both been working from home for a long time um so that has been more or less okay i think and probably for you too as well the last week has just been like insane and such a roller coaster politically emotionally With the like protests going on and all the racial violence, I think that has just been like on our minds and trying to figure out like what can we do and that sort of thing. It's just been it's been really hard.
2: Yeah, I I so appreciate you bringing that up. I mean, I'm glad you pointed out like this is what everyone should be thinking about right now. Um, So it's it's hardly just the pandemic alone that is occupying um, our thoughts and concerns and everything else. So I fully agree with you there, and I appreciate you mentioning it. Um, but I'm going to steer us back in time now to um, the 1940s, 50s, and 60s um, across the pond uh, in sort of central, I would call it Central Europe as opposed to Eastern Europe, and um, the context of Hungary. And before we get into the sport piece, which is what we're what we're here to talk about, I think it might be uh, useful for most of our listeners, for us too. to, To think through just a little bit about the actual history of the era, that is a brief sense of what the Hungarian communist state looked like prior to 1956. And for some people, 1956 may not even be a relevant year. So the other question is, what happened in 1956? Why is that such a critical historical landmark? And then what did the state look like after the revolution in 1956? And then, and I know I'm just piling question after question, so we can just kind of work through this as best we can. But then I'm also interested in in connection with that, why your research actually focuses on Hungary. Um, So really, in other words, what I'm saying is, how would you characterize the iteration of communism that we're going to be juxtaposing today with the far more familiar U.S. capitalist context?
1: Yeah, what a question. Whoo. OK. So, <laughs> no, no, it's great. Um, so first off, I'll start off with sort of like a broad history of Hungary, because most people probably don't even know where it is on the map, uh, much less sort of whether it's Central Eastern and sort of how it fits into even like European or Western history. Um, so it is a small country now of about 10 million people sort of right, Like you said, Central Europe's so a right in the middle of Europe um for several centuries it was part of the austro or the Austrian Empire and then the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the late 19th century um and then right after World War 1 um the western powers decided that in order to prevent any kind of future conflict arising out of nationalist tensions in uh central and southeastern Europe they decided to break up all of the sort of central um european and em- the central european empires but also divvy up the Ottoman Empire um, along what they believed were um, sort of ethnic lines to prevent ethnic conflict. Um, and so Hungary became its own independent state in uh, 1919 after the end of World War I. Um, and then so there's this brief period from 1919 to 1945 where it's an independent country, and it's it's an independent country, but it still is very aristocratic, is ruled by a pretty um, authoritarian fascistic ruler. Um, who's an admiral? Uh, sorry, an admiral. Even though they have no um, navy or no access to ocean or anything, which is kind <laughs> of funny. <laughs> um, um, and then after 1945, um, it sort of falls under the Iron Curtain, where um, the main powers after World War II decided they were going to sort of split Europe into spheres of influences, and one of them was going to be the sort of communist sphere of influence, which was going to be um, how do I say? where the Red Army, which is the Red Army, was the Soviet Army that had um, liberated Eastern Europe from the Nazis, that the Red Army was gonna have a presence in Eastern Europe, um, including Austria at that point. Um, And then as it quickly became clear from 1945 to 1948 was that um, the communist parties were receiving a lot of assistance from the Soviets and the USSR to essentially take over the countries one by one and this is what happens except in czechoslovakia where communism um is that the communists are elected to power which is interesting in and of itself um, and so 1948 is like when communism starts in hungary and from 1948 to 1956 so until about the revolution is sort of what most people call as like the stalinist era um, it's the the, the harshest ru- harshest period of communist rule in Hungary, and so when most Americans and Westerners typically think of communism, um, this is the era that they're thinking of, although they think, usually think that this comprises the entire sort of Cold War and not just this sort of brief eight-year period. But when I say Stalinist, it means that it was very heavily influenced by Stalin and the Soviet Union, where there's a lot of repression. There's a huge shortage of very basic items like toilet paper, for example, Um, I actually had some friends that wrote a really interesting op-ed sort of comparing the shortage in in, in communist Eastern Europe to what's going on right now, but that's a different issue. Um, um, Let's see, they were also um, nationalizing all the industries, um, putting people on communal farms and things like that. People were being taken by the secret police at night and being sent to labor camps. So it was a very, very harsh period. Um, incidentally, this is also the period, um, known as sort of the golden era of sport in Hungary, which is also interesting and something that I can touch on later. Um, so essentially Absolutely. there's sort of, yeah. Um, so there's sort of like these tensions building. There are a couple, um, uprisings. There's one in, in East Germany, 1953. There's, um, one in Poland earlier in 1956, and then in 1956, um, between late October, early November, there's essentially what starts out as a, a student revolution There turns into a broad like anti-communist revolution where they the, there's actually a bloody revolution where they are like using arms um, to revolt and sort of throw off the communist yoke. Um, and this is actually the only incident in which there's like a real bloody attempt uh, where there's like fighting in the streets and tanks in the streets and stuff like that in Eastern Europe. Um, The other revolutions and uprisings are much more peaceful. Um, And so 56 is a major moment because the Hungarians, they actually think that they've won for a few days because the Soviets withdraw their tanks outside of Hungary. Um, The the, the sort of reformed um, socialist leaders in Hungary that come to power are more moderate than the ones that came before. And um, so they announced that they're leaving the Warsaw Pact, which was sort of like NATO, but for Eastern Europe and and the Soviet Union. Um, And then in early November, the Soviet tanks roll back in and they very brutally and harshly crush the revolution. Um, And this sets off sort of a whole chain of events uh, whereby, for example, um, 200,000 Hungarians leave um, the communist state and essentially defect to Western Europe. And they come to Canada, they come to the US, they go to Australia. Um, So they lose like a huge, huge labor pool, essentially, and a huge number of people. Um, And then so after 56, or sort of a few years of reprisals where they're trying to really harshly suppress the revolutionaries. Uh, But then in in the mid to late 60s is when um, we really see a huge shift in the kind of rule that characterized communism in Hungary. Um, some people like to call it goulash communism, Goulash being the the type of um, Hungarian stew that's very typical, part of very much the heart of Hungarian culture, um, where it's a little bit softer. the political repression is nowhere near like it was in the 1950s. Um, there are um, some dissident publications that are emerging. people are allowed to travel abroad. Um, and essentially, there's what some people call sort of like a social compromise where the government sort of agrees to sort of lessen this political repression. And in return, they will give people like basic consumer items and freedoms that they want. But people have to sort of not be apolitical, right? Like there will be no more revolution. Um, and so I think part of your question was like, um, when you're compa- like, what, what, what iteration of communism would I like to, to sort of compare with the capitalist context? And so it's this like goulash communism. From the 60s to the 80s that's uh, much more sort of livable and humane than the prior version
2: that was fantastic and i just i just want to jump in for a second to say um also a very personal history for me because it just so happens that um, my family was part of that diaspora you mentioned uh, after 56 who ultimately ended up in canada so there you go
1: there are really strong hungarian communities yes like i know toronto is supposed to be a really big um, yeah. community there New Jersey has a big community, uh, South Florida, um, there's a pretty solid one in California um, and other parts as well. Um, And then I I think your other question was like, how did I get into the country? Yes, that's right. Yeah, so it's sort of interesting. So when I started my master's at University of Florida um, or when I wanted to start uh, the master's program, I knew I wanted to study somewhere in Central Europe. Um, But at college, the only um, history that I'd studied um, was, uh, sorry, only Central European history that I'd studied was German history. Um, And I didn't know how to speak German. And that's something that's pretty much a requirement. If you start graduate studies in German history, you need to know some level of German. Um, And I was already living in Gainesville, Florida, where UF is. And um, University of Florida has a um, Center for European Studies um, it's something that like a lot of schools have in the U.S. Um, they have like Center for Latin American Studies, Center for Asian Studies. And these centers um, get a lot of funding from the U.S. government to essentially train and get or train um, graduate students to learn lesser known languages. Um, I actually think it's a holdover from the Cold War, but I don't actually know. That's just sort of what I think. So. So, yeah. So I started studying Hungarian. Um, and then I visited Budapest and was like, oh, this is amazing. Like, I want to keep coming back here. I want to keep traveling here. Budapest is, is beautiful. Um, so that's sort of what, yeah, what got me in it.
0: So I, I, I have to admit, I was listening to a previous podcast that you, um, that you recorded. And, and I was really interested in your story. What brought you to sport in Hungary?
1: Yeah, I actually I love this question, um, in part because like sport history is kind of a small field and not many people know it exists. I mean, sports sociology is a much, much bigger field, sport management, much bigger field. Um, but essentially what happened was I was trying to find a dissertation topic. And for my master's, I had studied like post-war denazification in Budapest. Um, which I liked, but wasn't like in love with. And my my advisor was very much like her. Sort of one of her big lessons for her graduate students is that she wanted all of us to study something that we loved. Because she's like, you're going to have to do this for 10 years, if not longer. Like you should love it. Don't do it just because mm-hmm. I just because it's my sort of expertise. Um, and so I, I really just I kind of was like, I'm interested in everything. In everything, I don't really know. Um, and she was on a book committee for um the main um academic association that i that i work in that focuses on like eastern european and russian history and she was one day i was in our office and she's like you know i just read this book and we just awarded this major book prize to this book on sport history and i was like i've never heard of sport history and it's by <laughs> <laughs> i don't even i didn't even really know it existed and it's by robert edelman who is like a giant in the field and it's called spartak moscow and it's about this football soccer team in the Soviet Union named Spartak Moscow and I read it and was totally fascinated and was hooked and I was like oh my god this is what I have to do and like every and when I talked to her about it she was like I've never seen you light up this way this is amazing you need to you need to pursue this and like let me know what you find Um, and I started talking to um, there's a sport management professor at st. John's University in uh, New New York City and I met her at a conference and she played basketball in Hungary for the uh, Central Sports School, um, which every, every communist country by like the 60s had a Central Sports School which in some places was like an actual school where like you went to classes during the day and then your practice was sort of like revolved around classes. Um, In Hungary, it was a little bit different. It was just about athletics. But anyways, I met her at a conference and like totally hit it off. And she's like, you have to do this topic. This is amazing. Um, And then I just started like interviewing people. Um, My language teacher, I was very fortunate. Her father-in-law was a fencer in Hungary and in the six from the 60s to the 80s. So like this exact period of goulash communism. And she told me, you know, like he has all these crazy stories about smuggling goods and like hiding wigs and like sealing compartments and trains. And she was, and I was like, what is this? Like, this is, this is so cool. <laughs> um, so I met him one summer and I interviewed him and it was just amazing. Just like three hours of like stories. And I was like, this is so cool. Like, I love this. I want to keep doing it. Um, and then just kept interviewing people and just, like, loved the stories. And I loved, like, meeting people and actually hearing them sort of describe what they went through. And that just really, that, like, hooked me.
0: So this has nothing to do with your, with your career as a Division One swimmer, does it? So to, for our listeners, you also have a, lo- a career as a Division One swimmer. But it seems like this has nothing to do with that.
1: Well, you know, it, do, it does. It doesn't. It doesn't. And it. And I say and I say this because when I started it, my advisor was like, you're an athlete. Like, I know that you care about sports and it's not. I never talked about it with her because I'm not like a sports fan. Like, I wish I was, <laughs> but I was like an athlete first and foremost. Like, I never watched football. I watched the like World Cup soccer and the Olympics, but that was sort of it. Um so when I started it, like I didn't think that that connection was there, but I, I realized that like when I was little, I always loved like meeting Olympians. Like I remember like, like, so I was a distance swimmer. So I swam the 500 free and the mile and the 400 IM and the 200 fly, which are like some of the hardest events. Um, and Janet Evans was like the star and all of the distance freestyle events. And so she was like a god. And so, like, I always wanted to, like, hear her talk and watch her interviews and all this stuff. So once I started realizing how much I liked interviews, it kind of, like, clicked, was, like, I understand, like, how much effort goes into being a really elite athlete. Like, I understand how hard it is. And I was, like, not only were were these people I'm interviewing, like, they were not only these Olympic athletes, but they're also living these, like, triple lives as, like, Citizens under communism, but also like smugglers and doing all these really insane but cool things. And so, I guess the attraction, like what attracted me, really was like at the heart of my upbringing. But I didn't really connect that until until much later, until I needed to make that connection for job applications. I think.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, yeah. No, I, I I really like I I I share. It's interesting. We have, we have different disciplines seemingly on the surface, right? Um, I, me as something of a sociologist, although, I, frankly, I'm pretty interdisciplinary. So who, who knows what I am, really? Derek's a sociologist, <laughs> for sure. Um, but um, but the, what I was trying to get at is that I do interviews, too, right? So you're doing this oral history and the kind of qualitative interview work I do, I feel is ultimately quite similar to the sort of project. Um, yeah. And that's one reason why we're doing what we're doing on this show, right? Mm-hmm. Is that we really like talking to people about um, not only, right? That's why, that's why we've kind of, even though we have so much to talk about in the history of Hungary here. We've kind of gone on a slight digression because we're also just as interested to talk to people like you about why you do what you do, right? And and how much of you is in the work that you produce? Because I think we don't hear enough about that, and, mm-hmm. I, and I think that really is part of what kind of animates um, one's understanding of all of these issues. But I'm gonna. I mean, we're gonna come back. We're definitely coming back to the college sport piece. Um, mm-hmm. But before we do, I wanna I wanna plunge in now to. Um, the history of sports in Hungary, uh, especially in the 50s and 60s. And so um, to do that, I'm going to start by just quoting something that you wrote uh, in one of um, your articles. You wrote, quote, Despite historiographic shifts, the public continues to perceive Cold War sport in Eastern Europe within an unambiguous totalitarian framework, wherein the East German doping scheme in the 70s and 80s symbolizes the entirety of the Eastern Bloc sport experience. The framework serves contemporary audiences across the former Iron Curtain in different but crucial ways. First, it reinforces the triumphalist Cold War narrative in the West. It also enables everyone to blame the abuses in sport on the now defunct socialist systems. My question is, how would you have us shift our understanding of Cold War sport in Eastern Europe?
1: Great question, and actually there are like three questions in here, so I'll I'll try to answer them. And if I don't get to one, please don't hesitate to remind me to come back to this. Um, so first, um, let me just say that quote, the that those lines took me like weeks to put together in terms of how to like phrase it that way. Um, so I love that you highlighted that and wanted to wanted to um come back to it. Well, let me just say um, before
2: we get into it, your your prose your prose is really beautiful, and I have to say that. I- I was a, his, a history major as an undergraduate student and I obviously deeply value history. I am not a huge fan of historical writing in that I sometimes find it can be a little on the dry side and loses some of the sort of intrigue that are, is actually there in these narratives. That is not true. You have taken in your work, your work is on a topic as you point out that it seems really esoteric to a lot of people. But actually, you make it so compelling that I was literally tweeting out passages from your work because I was like, how is this possible? This is fascinating. Um, so anyway, I just want to say, like, you may be putting a lot of time in that work, but it paid off because it is terrific stuff.
1: Well, thanks so much. That's such a huge compliment. Um, so so first, I think I'll kind of talk about this, what what this quote is saying um, for people who maybe there is some jargon in there, just so for people who may not be able to follow along and it just is, and I'm not the first person to say this um, by any means. People that have like analyzed, for example, the Disney film Miracle have talked about this a lot. Um, just in the sense that, like, from a Western perspective, and in an Eastern European, but I'll get to that in a second. But the way that sort of the media and even even a lot of the scholarship until recently, the way it's portrayed the Eastern Bloc sports systems, and by Eastern Bloc I mean Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, um, is that they, they they portray them as these like horribly repressive, like doping filled, um, really, truly inhumane sports systems. And it really the evidence for that um, largely, I mean, some of it, it's like co- it's Cold War rhetoric. That's where it came from, in part because there was very little information that was coming out of the Eastern Bloc about their own sports systems. So that's part of it. But also a lot of it were like Cold Warrior historians who were wanting to sort of promote this Cold War. Um, these Cold War narratives about sport. And sport is something that sort of, you know, people are interested in. It's popular, so it's easy to catch up on. But it's been reiterated over and over and over in films, such as Rocky IV, sort of most famously. Um, But then also, like I said, the Disney film Miracle portrays that. um, When reports emerge, like really firm reports emerged in the 1990s after German reunification about the East German doping scheme and how high it went, um, there's this one uh famous book on it called Faust's gold and I, I hate it. I mean I know why it it need, it needed to be written because it needed to really expose because there were some really awful and horrible and abusive things about the system, absolutely. Um, but there are other there the, the, the system is much more nuanced than that, and it's not all like not all the systems were East Germany, but that's how it's been portrayed is that everyone was heavily doped. Um, no one had any agency, everyone's a victim. Um, they're actually athletes are either total victims that have no way or sort of no recourse to speak their voice or have any influence, or they are like these wily resistors that are like, you know, looking away when they're on the Olympic podium, when the Soviet flag is being raised as in, as in the case of a famous Czech gymnast, um, or that the famous blood in the water water polo match in 1956 between the Hungarians and the Soviets, um, And it's really either this East versus West sort of paradigm, or it's the Soviets are repressing and the Eastern Europeans are rebelling against Soviet rule. And while that certainly happened, that's not the only story that could be told and that should be told. Um, And I have to say like, these were the ideas that were in my head. This is the narrative in my head when I started interviewing people, because I just, I didn't really know any better. There wasn't really much out there that was telling a different story. Um, And so once I started interviewing people and I'm like, these people have these fascinating stories. And, And, you know, a lot of the athletes would lead their interviews with talking about the repression and sort of reiterating what most people know but then once I would sort of start to say, you know, like, you know, were you ever able to travel abroad or like, you know, I would usually say, you know, other people have said that athletes were able to bring goods home, back home to their friends and family. Did you witness that? Or were you able to do that? And like their faces would light up and they would just become so animated, especially the male athletes. The female athletes were much more hesitant to talk about it for other reasons, more for reasons I can talk about if you want. Um, but it just, it was clear that that was like a form of agency for them. Um, and then a lot of them had really like sort of ambivalent, um, perspectives of, um, the socialist sports system. And at the end of my interviews, one of the questions I would always ask and that I still ask is, um, like what, like I would always ask them, like, what do you think, was the, what would it say? It was like, how do you think the socialist sports system influenced your life? And I was very specific, the socialist sports system. And some of them took that to mean the socialist state. And they would mm-hmm. kind of go on and on and on about, oh, we were oppressed and da 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 da. And like, we were forced to do this or that. And we were propaganda pieces and all this stuff. But a lot of people would talk about like, oh, like, you know, I was able to pursue a sport career and I had all these friends and I was able to also be like a veterinarian or kind of do all these other things. Um, So it's really interesting to sort of see how people parsed out that phrase, like social at sports system and what they thought it meant and what they thought I wanted to hear, which is something in terms of like memory studies is something I was also interested in. Um, So this is all to say that like, If you ask people and you ask the right questions, and since you've done interviews, you know this too, like this really influences how people answer and how they and how they are willing to sort of portray their lives. I I sort of then started leading the research through these stories rather than I'm looking and I was looking in the archives. um, But the thing is, and I mentioned this um, somewhere else, was that if you look, you know, all archives are like state driven most of them are some form of like imperialist like the the how do i say this archives are like an imperialist endeavor. endeavor and by that i mean it's mm-hmm. the state's way of like tracking information about people um which derek i know you deal with um like security and that sort of stuff so you mm-hmm. could probably speak more to that um but the communist state was all about that. And so it was about like gathering information on its citizens. And so when it came to like looking for athletes' name, for example, in the archives, both in the national archives but also the secret police ones, um, the names only came up either um when they were presenting athletes in like a subservient position where an athlete was like asking for um, asking to be able to to move into a different apartment, which is something under communism, you couldn't just move wherever. Like usually if you wanted to buy an apartment, you had to put down a down payment. And then in 10 years, like your name would be called and you would you would have to like bring all the rest of the money and like then to pay for the apartment and then you could move in like it was a super long process. Um, Now, athletes could usually jump the line because of their connections through the sport leadership in the state. So they usually would just put in a request and within like six months, they would be up, they would be allowed to buy their own apartment. It wasn't given to them in Hungary. They had to pay for it. This is something athletes always insisted on. Um, um, but basically, I, I lost my train of thought, um, thought for a second. Um, but um, But basically, these sorts of things are like the nuances that we don't get, but we see like athletes requesting for apartments in, in the archives. But you don't get all these stories about smuggling, for example, um, unless an athlete got caught. And then again, an athlete is like a victim um, or they're being victimized and they're being repressed. And then sometimes athletes were, um, they tried to turn them into secret police agents or informants or sort of whatever, um, or they would sort of just keep an eye on the athletes and kind of give them like a you know um, a, a smack on the hand and kind of move on. Um, and so that's why like, again, like going to the athletes themselves, like you get a much richer understanding and and again this is like their own history so i feel like they should kind of have a say in how it's told and then of course you balance that you know you compare that with the other forms of information available um and then i guess in terms of um Well, let me just stop there and then you can ask a follow-up or if I didn't get to another (laughs) question, you can ask me.
0: (laughs) No, that was actually like wonderful and leads me kind of into um, one of the things that I really appreciate about your work is that you're kind of taking on these like stereotypical kind of tropes and narratives of sort of socialist states in the Western world. So I'm really curious if there was like one North American misunderstanding of the so-called like Socialist sport um, like you've spoken about in, in in the context of Hungary, what would that be
1: um, oh I'm really torn. there are like two sort of threads um, well, two are great yeah you really both of them <laughs> okay i'll try I'll try to tie them together so I think the first is that because the sort of western narrative is that That Cold War sport under communism was totalitarian, that there is nothing we can learn from those systems, that they were doing everything absolutely wrong when it came to um, treating athletes, when it came to funding them, when it came to those sorts of things. So that is sort of one side of it, is that there's nothing we can learn, completely disregard everything. It was all horrible and abusive. And then the other side is, is, you know, the other side of the coin is that athletes were victims and that they had no agency unless they were totally blowing off, you know, the communist regime. And then thereafter were like really harshly repressed if they did not defect Um, and so, sort of show that like athletes had some agency and they, they had agency in Hungary in particular. Um, which I'm happy to go into more. um, But essentially, in 1956, the timing of the revolution um, at the end of October, early November, was only like three weeks before the 1956 Olympics in Melbourne began. So the timing is really important. And what ends up happening is over 300 Hungarian athletes defect to the West. I mean, this is like, a huge number of athletes. And so, what happens is that it forces a huge shift within the sports system um, where they realize that, like, we need to treat athletes better or more will defect. Um, and so, that's the sort of agency and influence that athletes had. Um, that I think that is something that could be taken more seriously.
2: So, you've been painting this vivid picture of what the Hungarian sports system under communism looked like. But what we haven't really talked about at all here is what the US system looks like at that time and and that's one thing that really popped for me when reading your work right the comparative element of it and of course one thing that we're really preoccupied here with is the question of working conditions for athletes and you really get into that in your work so really my question here is can you compare for us those conditions and stat the working conditions and also status for Olympic sport athletes in Hungary and the United States in the 50s and 60s. And I just want to say, I was particularly struck in reading your articles, and this is one reason why I want to ask this question, by the fact that athletes in the preeminent Los Angeles Athletic Club in the early 1960s, for instance, and I only learned this from your work, had to climb a six-foot chain link fence to access a high school track for their morning practices, and the fact that these same athletes lived 13 to a three-bedroom house. Um, So, I mean, like, you know, those are not, that's not the way we typically understand elite sport in the United States. So I think that's really like something we need to kind of uh, include in this picture. Um, And also perhaps maybe as a consequence of that, could you comment on the extent that this history then is connected to this concept of amateurism, right? One we have discussed uh, in historical uh, perspective, primarily up to this point in our show, in the context of the NCAA, which we will get back to, uh, in an earlier episode with uh, Dr. Victoria Jackson.
1: Yeah, so um, I was trying to figure out what would sort of be the best way to tackle this. Um, so so first, I'll t- I guess I'll talk a little bit more about the Hungarian sport context, um, just to to kind of nuance that a little bit. And then I'll talk about Olympic amateurism and then how sort of that relates to um, the conditions for, for athletes here and how that compares to Hungarian athletes. Um, So one is that within the communist sports system, and this is, um, I'll try to speak sort of broadly to the entire Eastern Bloc, but also then kind of zoom into Hungary, um, is that um, sort of endemic or sort of at the heart of this was that sport was perceived as a tool to fight the Cold War, um, as a way to do it through uh, like a cultural arena, Um, and it was a way for the governments to sort of spend a lot of money on like a very few, like compared to the broader population, a very few number of people, but sort of achieve a lot out of it, both in terms of building up public support domestically, which was super important throughout the entire, entire period. And every single country was the government's needing to sort of shore up their support, um, but then also to try to spread the, the good news about socialism abroad and convince people abroad of like the merits of communism over the capitalist West. So that's sort of a major difference between how these um, political systems viewed and use athletes is that in the US, it's mainly for capital gain and sort of entertainment purposes. Um, and then, and there are some sort of like military and other purposes as well, but those are sort of the main ways that they do it. And under communism, it was for political, ends, and, and both of them did use it for political ends, but it's much more so in the 50s and 60s um, in, in the communist Eastern Bloc. Um, and so in the 50s in Hungary, during this like real harsh Stalinist period, I mentioned that this is the period of like the, the golden era of sport. And part of that is because the interwar sport community in Hungary was incredibly strong. They received the third most medals of all competing nations at the 1936 Berlin Olympics, which is like amazing um and then it's, at ridiculous, the 19-
2: it's ridiculous sorry just to jump in there i i, I could not understand that in reading. hungary is a tiny nation
1: yeah it's it's absolutely insane, and actually there is some um, research in Hungarian about it, but much more needs to be done about like why. And everyone always asks me why, and I'm like, oh, I do the post, yeah, I do the the communist <laughs> period. I don't really know, um, but um, so that is huge. And then so basically the surviving sport, there's still a large surviving sport community after World War II who are dedicated to like the Hungarian nation and want to continue their sport careers. And who more or less are like okay we'll continue our careers and sort of see how it goes um and some of them are coerced into doing it you know i really am like not trying to sugarcoat it um and so the government devotes like all of this money all of these resources to um sort of building stadiums sometimes not in like a great way but also to like funding athletes and so for example from the beginning of the era um, athletes, top-level athletes, um, had what are called fake paper jobs. And this was something that the media, the Western media, picked up on very quickly and was people knew about it. But basically, for example, on paper, an athlete would have the job of like a chemist's assistant. But they wouldn't have like any education. They wouldn't have any background um people that, that people that competed on like the military the military and the police teams were like members of the army or police lieutenants but didn't have to do any work for it i mean they had to go to like military training and stuff um but they had no like real work to do um i interviewed this one um amazing water polo player um And um, his name was Miklos or Nick Martin. And he actually defected in 1956. He was the only one who spoke English out of all of the like 34 Hungarian athletes who came over here. Um, And he told me this amazing story about how um, he was on the police team, which was Doja. And he told the story about how um, he realized how much of a folly it was that he had to go to his workplace to receive his check his monthly check every week. Cause he's like, I don't work there. So what's the point of going there to pick it up? So he asked them to just mail it to him. <laughs> he just was like, this is a farce. Like what's going on. Just mail it to me, which is like just one of those like really tiny nugget of stories you hear it and you're like, Oh, that's a great like soundbite, you know, a great quote or whatever. Um, but so, so that was, that was how it was, you know, that's how it existed throughout the fifties. And you know, so they, they received full funding and it, they didn't receive these enormous incomes. Um, but they received like better than average. Um, they could also receive pretty uh, pretty significant lump lump sums of money if they won Olympic medals, um, if they broke records, world records in particular. Um, there were lots of like opportunities and connections that they received through being an athlete. Um, and one thing that I'll say is that because of the fact that the communist government owned the mean owned all modes of production. Um, And because the communist governments focused first and foremost on industrial production um, in the 50s, especially, it meant that consumer items were in really high demand and there was always a shortage. It's what economists have called like a shortage economy. So that's why you think of like bread lines. You think of like people not having pantyhose, like pantyhose was a huge, huge item that athletes smuggled back home, um, which is kind of funny. You think pantyhose are like a really sort of mundane thing.
2: It was funny until we got to the pandemic, and then we'd be smuggling toilet paper home for sure
0: if we were able to move abroad.
1: (laughs) I know, right? Um, And so, (laughs) and 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 so they had sort of all these connections to people who could get them access to goods, whether it was you know buying an apartment, stuff like that. Um, But they had like a you know a pretty good standard of living. They trained two times a day a lot of times. They did a ton of cross training, was huge in the Eastern Bloc. I mean, I think it originated in the Eastern Bloc, but I'm not totally sure. Um, you know, like people who were runners or water polo players were doing cross-country skiing in the winter. Um, so things that you know, he, you know, here picked up. We picked up on much later that, like I did as an athlete in like the 90s and 2000s. Um, and and so and, and they were real celebrities. And, and under communism, like people really revered them. They were heroes. They did have to serve as political propaganda pieces. They, a lot of them were, were heavily monitored by the secret police in the 1950s. Um, after the 56 revolution, that repression really significantly decreases. Um, and then as I mentioned, just like under the goulash communism system, athletes, a lot of male athletes in particular, had it really good in Hungary from the 60s to 80s. Uh, there were still like rules that they needed to follow and they could still get punished for, like smuggling too many goods, for example, or breaking certain rules, but by and large, life was pretty good. Um, So much so that actually very few athletes defected to the West after 56, Um, even though they actually knew more people abroad that could help them defect than athletes did in the 1950s, which is interesting
0: you've mentioned, um, the significance of the 56 revolution. So I'm just, I, I, could you walk our listeners through the overall like significance of 1956 on sport in Hungary?
1: Yeah. So it is, it is a huge, huge moment. Um, because so many athletes defected, I think I mentioned 300 over 300 athletes defected. Um, So that was 34 athletes and coaches from the Hungarian Olympic team, which was a huge number. Um, But then in addition to that, um, numerous super famous football or soccer players, such as Ferenc Pushkash is someone that a lot of people know about. Um, There were, uh, I think, about 100 youth football players that defected to Austria and Sweden and the UK. Um, and so, so essentially what happens is that sport leaders, even in Melbourne at the Olympic Games, um, so the sport leaders that are in Melbourne, they don't actually do much to prevent the athletes from defecting. And the reason why they do that is because the the Hungarian revolution is still being suppressed and hungry. There are tanks in the streets. People don't know if their families are alive. They don't know what sport is going to look like. They don't know what the communist state is going to look like. Um, so actually the main sport leader knows that some of the athletes are going to defect. And some of them actually told him they are going to defect. And he actually takes like a shot of palinka with them, which is like the Hungarian, um, the main Hungarian like brandy. And he like toasts to them. And so they, a lot of the athletes leave on like somewhat good relationships with the, the Hungarian sport leadership. Um and so amazing. when yeah I mean it's it's like incredible and actually there's one source um that the main sport leader in his memoir he sort of hints that he had thought about staying abroad too and that he actually tried to stay abroad in Australia claiming that he needed to get like a last minute surgery um but his superiors were like no 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 you need to come home <laughs> like you need to come home you can't stay abroad <laughs> um um so so what happens is that then when the Olympic team, when the, when the athletes go back, there is like a period of repression, but sport leaders are kind of caught in the middle and they had good relationship with athletes and they're thinking, you know, we need to do what we can to prevent more from defecting. And also the communist government, they needed athletes to be in Hungary to serve as their propaganda pieces, to convince people that the communist government is humane and that everything is okay. Um, And so there sort of is like this web of like, well, we need to treat athletes better um, because they're more going to leave. And also internationally, the international opinion in the sports world of Hungary was like, oh, there was this really violent revolution and like athletes are defecting and this really negative information is coming out. Like we don't know if we want them as part of the international sport community. Um, So there's sort of like this multi-layered sort of many reasons i guess for why these the, the sports systems to change um and so that's why it's such a major moment because it goes from being like heavily repressive and very stalinist to an atmosphere where like especially mainly male athletes but some female athletes too but they had very very close relationships with the sport leadership and um a lot of athletes talk about how it was like the best period of their lives um and and while that may seem to only be related to their sport career their sport career was made possible because of the socialist state, right? Like it was made possible because of the socialist context. So you have to take all of that into consideration when, when they talk about, you know, the good life of when they were an athlete in the 70s and 80s.
2: Okay. So one thing you keep coming back to, and, and we should really flesh it out now, because um, frankly, you've got me really interested, the <laughs> distinction between the experiences of male and female athletes at this time, right? Because you've been saying, you've been very pointed, I think, in saying that for male athletes, this has been the experience. What is different for women at the time? Um, and frankly, I'm, I'm kind of curious if we could bring it back in the comparative perspective of the United States in terms of how you would suggest the uh, the attitude to women's sport may have been in, like, especially in the 50s and 60s in the United States versus Hungary.
1: Yeah. Um, so I promise I will get to the comparison. I feel like I'm trying to give context, but I might be giving too much for you all. Um,
2: no, 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 not too much. Absolutely not. <laughs>
1: So, um, okay, so officially like on paper, the communist government supported male and female athletes equally. So that meant that women had equal opportunities to participate in sports. So this even went down to like when physical education teachers in schools, when they would talk to potential, when they would talk to students who showed athletic promise and like encourage them to go, oh, you might think about going to this or that sport club. Um, they did this equally, uh, between the male and female athletes. And they did this in part because, you know, under, under communism, there was this idea that the communist government was going to eliminate all differences between everybody, whether it was according to gender, nationality, or ethnicity, um, religion, and all these things. So everyone was going to be equal. Um, and this is, this is why communism was going to liberate everybody because it was going to sort of break these shackles of distinction and inequality between everybody. Um, So and and also the communist governments knew that the that most other and most other countries, um, female athletes were not supported and that this would sort of be an easy way for them to win gold medals. Right. Like there's kind of a wide open door. I mean, there were athletes in other countries, female athletes in other countries, um, but because most countries, um, governments did not provide state funding for sport the female athletes needed to be wealthy and and male athletes needed to be wealthy there as well. And when I talk about the comparison to the US, I'll touch on that too. Um, So officially, like I said, on paper, they were equal, which meant that women also had many opportunities to compete in sport. They also got these fake paper jobs. They were paid similarly from the evidence that I've been able to find. They received the same exact same lump sums that men were able to get. So on that level, it was very equal. And so that's a huge advantage and a huge difference from the get go. Between the communist and sort of the, the capitalist and other sports systems in the world, which really, really benefited hugely female athletes. Um, now, the the main difference, and that's why I've been saying mainly male athletes when I've been sort of um, making or making these cases, is that um, the sports systems were still very patriarchal under communism, meaning that almost all the sport leaders were male, most coaches were male. Um, there were some female coaches, and a lot of physical education teachers were female, which is not a surprise just because of the teaching, the gender dynamics of the teaching profession in general. Um, but so, because of the um, like male dominance of the sport leadership and of many of the coaches, it meant that when it came to um, pull what what a lot of people call pulling connections. So, I mentioned earlier how connections were really key. To um, being moved up on the waitlist for apartments, or um, being being allowed to, or how do I say, allowing an athlete to improve their career by moving to a different sport club that had better sort of training opportunities than maybe a different one. Um, by and large, um, male athletes receive these sorts of benefits and opportunities much more frequently than than male sorry than female athletes. Um, so female athletes had a much harder time sort of moving up in the in the latter in terms of um, whether they wanted to go to a different sport club or get a sport leadership position or be a highly ranked athlete um in some of my in some of my research i talk about how there was like a super successful female basketball coach who wanted to get there was a, there were different sort of like titles and different ranks of coaching and there was this special like master coach it's called mestre edzu where once you got to that level, sort of your opportunities really, really open up to you. You got paid more. Um, it was really like what every coach wanted to achieve. And she um, was was definitely barred from getting the special title, even though her own husband was really highly ranked within the sport leadership, she was still barred from really reaching that level that she wanted to. Um, and so, so when it came to sort of more subtle, um i say subtle for athletes but sort of more um how do i say less less tangible uh, benefits and privileges mainly through connections female athletes were definitely disadvantaged in that way whereas male athletes because of sort of like the old boys club and the patriarchal system they had many more advantages than 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 uh female athletes did
2: interesting um what so before we go on to the next question though so so what <sighs> What did the U.S. system look like at that time?
1: Yeah, so um, it's in a lot of ways drastically different. um, And that, I mean, there were, what what do I say? Maybe I'll, I'm going to back up actually and talk about Olympic amateurism, and then I'll talk about the American sports system. Um, And that, so um, Professor Jackson, she talked about briefly about how um, the idea of amateurism, it comes from the British and it comes from, um, and, and after the British, it comes from sort of the Olympic movement. So the International Olympic Committee adopts this British idea of amateurism, which is this initially very classist idea, which meant that um, sort of it was it was the British upper crusts sort of attempts to control sport because there's this huge rise in sport um, during the period of industrialization uh, where we see working class neighborhoods that are developing like Uh, football teams and and all sorts of teams because it builds community and prestige, all these things. And the upper crust elite, they decide that they don't, that they can't compete against athletes from working class backgrounds who are being paid to be athletes. Um, And they don't want to be paid as athletes. They want to pursue sport simply for the sake of fun for the sake of pleasure. They don't want, they see this idea of being paid for, for being an athlete as being sort of this dirty thing that this sort of dirties up sport. We want to keep it pure. We want to keep it just for fun. And we want to play for the fun of the game. Um, and so the British developed this idea of amateurism whereby athletes could not be pay- the amateur athletes specifically could not be paid for their sporting endeavors, and if they were their professional athlete and then they could not participate in certain sort of sports leagues and things like that and so it's it's sort of very classist within that context, but this idea of amateurism it's created when the British Empire is growing all over the world. So it's not only a classist and elitist, it's also a colonialist and a racist and a very gendered and, you know, every sort of ism that you can sort of imagine because it's only, it, it's intended to keep sport um, so that only the white male elite can participate in it. Um, so those are sort of the, the origins. Um, and, then, and then so when the International Olympic Committee is created in the late, in, in the 1890s, um, it's created by aristocrats and barons, as Dr. Jackson talked about, and so upper crust elite people across Europe and in the U.S. And so they they take this idea of amateur sport because this is something that's very much common within their circles. Um, and so they use this also as a way to restrict who can and cannot compete at the Olympic Games. And then something else I'll mention, too, um, that I think isn't always emphasized, but that's really important and that is that um, when the IOC was created in the 1890s, this is a really important moment in the late 19th century. It's the moment of what some historians call new or high imperialism, where we so- sort of see imperialism being ramped up big time, whereby European powers, you know this is the, when the European powers are so-called scrambling for Africa to try to carve up the you know, various parts of Africa to kind of increase their imperial reach and contribute to their nationalism. And so when most people talk about Olympic, uh, the Olympic movement and amateurism, they're talking about it in terms of, oh, it's a mesh in these competing ideals of nationalism, but also internationalism, where sport can sort of be a bridge to achieve global peace. But it's also during this period where the European empires are expanding their powers and subjugating and like brutalizing people all over the world. Um and then the Olympic movement, they like like I mentioned, they're proclaiming, proclaiming to spread a political sport across the globe as a way to achieve world peace. Well, it's not apolitical because it's completely informed by Western ideals, political ideologies, and cultural forms. So it's Western culture that's being spread or sort of what I would say colonized.' It's like they're like it's cultural imperialism. Um, and they're wanting to spread the Western way of life and the Western versions of peace through Western versions of sport. Um, so this is what is really like the foundation of of amateurism of, of Western forms of amateurism. And then and then as uh, Dr. Jackson very elo- eloquently explained, you know, it gets picked up on in the U.S. Um, and so in the in the 50s, I mean, this is very much the height of amateurism. And what's also interesting about the 50s is because of the Cold War the US um, is doubling down on its version of amateurism, in part as a reaction to the communist government's form of state supported amateurism. Um, So as a way to sort of say, well, we are not putting hardly, you know, hardly any funding, we're not supporting our athletes, because the American way of life is for private endeavors to support sport and sport is individual individualistic, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, And so it's sort of this polar opposite sort of landscape of we don't do this so therefore this is why we do this sort of further justifying this exploitation that you're using of course they're not quite explaining it in this in these terms but that's what they're doing um and so in the 50s this is why you have like so there are you know athletes can get a, get a college education and a sport a scholarship um whereby i mean they're obviously as you guys have discussed they're not being paid to compete but they at least have some sort of funding some living circumstances to live on in like a dorm they have access to coaches they have access to like a track for example or a swimming pool or whatever they don't have to like pay for all of that but what happens is that once they graduate college or if they're not able to get any kind of scholarship you know we know that segregation of sport was rampant um, so it's automatically in a lot of ways like blocking out um, athletes of color that it was extremely extremely difficult for athletes to maintain a career and be competitive internationally at the i o c and other competitions um, if they didn't if they were not from a wealthy background because they also had to work full time um, now there were some instances um, like um there's a historian named Kevin Witherspoon who has an article I think out about. Um, I think it was in Tennessee or Kentucky, there's like, a, there are some companies that do support sports, do support sports teams. So there's like a company, I think it's a Kentucky that has like some female, some female basketball players on its payroll that perform like secretarial duties, but they are like paid to sort of compete and train and stuff like that. So there are like those isolated incidents. But other than that, like athletes are really impoverished. Um, That's why you have 13 people at a very, very prominent athletic club where you have several runners who have run sub four minute miles, and which is, you know, like still very, very rare in the 1950s and 60s. And they're all living in the same house. Um, So you just have these athletes that are impoverished. And if they try to make any money from sport at all, the um, U.S. Olympic Committee and the Amateur, I think it's the Amateur Athletic Union, I always forget what the AAU stands for, which is sort of the precursor to the NCAA in a sense. They are cracking down on athletes, um, you know, stripping them of their medals and preventing them from competing if they are even coaching, for example. Um, so it's just really, really, um, there's no support for athletes. So in a lot of ways, it's, it's the complete opposite.
2: Yeah! Wow, that was incredible, and such a rich answer. It, it really, I think, was a beautiful compliment to to what Dr. Victoria Jackson um, spoke about in, in that earlier episode. And, and frankly, you got you also with, with your discussion of cultural imperialism um, in sports or the Olympic amateur movement. Uh, you also have me thinking about honestly our, our sort of modern iterations of that, like sport for development, right, and right to play, and the ways in which sport continues like a, a very particular. Western capitalist notion of sport is taken up as an inherent good, right, as something that should be disseminated around the world and somehow can like benefit people in this very transhistorical, universal way, which is clearly something that we want to at least cast some doubt on. Um, and, and frankly, to do that, that, that brings me to the next thing I want to ask, which is, and this is really an, an open-ended question. Uh, I say this all the time, and I say this to my students even more, that you know, I'm, I'm usually fishing with my questions. <laughs> They're not open-ended questions. They're usually types of answers that I want. But this is a real open-ended question. I, I, I don't have an answer in mind exactly. It's just something that I, want, I, I feel like we're trying to sort of think through on this show. Um, so what I want to broach here is really the instrumentalization of the body that occurs in elite sport and the extent to which that is a function of a broader mode of production. Right, because that's what we're talking about here, this sort of communist context, this capitalist context. Um, So uh, clearly, we have talked at length before about how capitalism produces a form of sport that is fundamentally dehumanizing because it subordinates the interests of athletic labor to the value it can produce for capital. Um, But at the same time, as you have indicated today, it's also almost cliché to speak of like doping and coercion as features of these Soviet sports systems. So that is clearly we see a sort of profound forms of unfreedom in non-capitalist contexts, as well as capitalist contexts of sport. My inclination then would be to suggest that these dynamics emerge from the kind of imperial competitions of the Cold War that we're talking about, right? because I think in that sense, we have a kind of imperialism flowing in both directions in this attempt to kind of control the world system at that point. Um, And because of that, because of that competition, right? What we don't, in fact, have is a more idealistic kind of socialist ethos that might allow for more humane renditions of sport. You know, what I'm kind of positing, at least, as a sort of potential vanishing point, if we were to think of a more idealistic version of socialist sport, sport is aesthetics, sport is pleasure, sport is play, right? I mean, what I would imagine are ideal forms of sport broadly, if we kind of remove them from these modes of production. I'm just curious what you make of all that, basically
1: yeah so i i really appreciate this question and it really made me sort of think about some of my research in a way i hadn't thought of before so kudos to you for a fantastic question um and i and i guess i guess before i speak specifically to the socialist ethos one thing that caught me about this question was um um that the, you said that these dynamics emerged from the imperial the imperial competitions of the cold war and i guess one thing that i would say to that is that the whole how do I say the the communist the communist government's impetus to fund sport to coerce athletes to, to you know to be to be athletes and to use them as propaganda and all these things I've been talking about that certainly gets amplified during the Cold War um, right because it's East versus West and they see this as an arena for you know political gain and things like that um, but it, it elements of it starts much earlier and that is that in the Soviet Union in the 1930s um, Stalin is trying to consolidate, he's, he's consolidated, consolidated his control and he's trying to tamp down, tamper down on what he seems to be is like uncommunist communist behavior. And sort of like, he thinks that the communist experiment has gone off the rails and it's bourgeois and all these things. So he really tightens up the reins. And one thing that he does is he, he and his leadership, they realize that, they, they decide that they want to start creating like models for the new Soviet man and the new Soviet woman. And so they decide they needed to find heroes for the public to show them this is what you need to do to be a good communist citizen. And the way that they do this are through these labor competitions, right? Because labor is very much at the heart of communism and the communist system, right? It's like thinking about people as workers and all these things that you all have been talking about in this episode and other episodes. But so they start these labor competitions where they say, OK, we're going to, you know, we're going to do we're going to see how many, I don't know, rods of steel that the, the workers in this factory can produce in four hours. And so they start off in these small competitions and then they make them a much bigger deal. And what they do is they start selecting these like socialist heroes of labor and start putting them on this pedestal. And um, as part of these competitions, first, they're sort of like innocuous competitions, but then they really ramp them up where they say, OK, we're going to work for 12 hours straight. And we're going to make sure that everything is in line for you to be able to have sort of the smoothest working process as possible so that everything is lined up for you. And so it's called this it's called the Stuck uh, movement. Where they create these socialist heroes, and 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 they and they start first, they start by like propping them up and using them as using them as these propaganda pieces. They offer them monetary rewards. They give them apartments. So sort of similar things that you start seeing a little bit later happen in the Soviet Union with athletes. They start doing it with athletes, I think, in the late 1930s. Jennifer Parks, who's a really noted uh, Soviet uh, sports historian, could could speak more definitively to that, as could Bob Edelman. Um, But so it so so this sort of fundamental competition, but also we're going to sort of prop up, fund, use and coerce heroes for the socialist state. This starts off in the 30s and very quickly they start realizing they need to do this with athletes, too, because in the 20s, they are having these like socialist sport competitions, but it kind of sputters out and they're not totally sure what to do with it. It's hard for them to sort of build a movement around it. Um, And so that happens in the Soviet Union before the Cold War. Um, And and so I just sort of wanted to point that out, Um, you know, as as sort of an ideal socialist ethos, like, yes, in an ideal world and a truly socialist sort of community, I think that it could be. I do think that it could allow for more humane conditions, right? Because if it's actually valuing athletes' labor as as well as the labor of everyone else, the way like individuals deserve to have their labor valued, then it should treat people humanely.
0: We've been speaking kind of indirectly about sort of like Soviet propaganda and I am really interested in hearing your thoughts about something that like our listeners might not immediately make a sort of connection to in terms of propaganda. And that's like relationships between Sports Illustrated and the CIA during this area. Um, And I guess my question to you is, how did the magazine participate in Cold War efforts to bring defectors from the Soviet bloc to the United States?
1: This is such a fascinating piece of history. So I was really excited that you all wanted to talk about it. I first wanna plug the fantastic work of a, of a good friend and colleague. Um, his name is Toby Ryder. He's a professor of kinesiology at Cal State Fullerton. He's been like a huge mentor and, and we've uh, worked together on some oral history stuff. He has a book that's all about this. It's called Cold War Games, Propaganda, the Olympics and U.S. foreign policy. So basically everything that I'm going to say going forward is like from his book. And (laughs) then I just and then I just sort of picked up like I added to what he did and sort of picked up the story with like what happened to the athletes once they got here. Um, So his whole argument is essentially that. Um, In the 1950s, which is much earlier than what most historians had, had, had thought, that in the 1950s, the U.S. government wanted to sort of meet the Soviet challenge in the Cold War, and they started to do so quite aggressively in the 1950s. This is early on but they wanted to do it in a way that was fundamentally, again, totally the opposite of the way the communists supported sport. So they did not wanna do it in a way that appeared as if it was coming from the government, as if it was state funded, state controlled, all of these things. So they wanted to hide the fact that there, the US government's efforts to influence, use um, sport as propaganda, et cetera, that it was coming from them, from the government. So to hide this, they started doing it through these, what Toby calls these covert propaganda operations where Washington created this like sort of new, they sort of, there, during World War II, there had been a psychological warfare like apparatus obviously to fight the war. And then after World War II, it had been shut down. And then under Truman and Eisenhower, they start to recreate it to fight the Cold War. Um, and they do this by creating uh, what people have called the state private network where um, the government will work through private companies, organizations, and some public organizations as well to like implement policies or implement actions that the government will fund and that the government wants to happen. But the government doesn't want its hands on it. They don't want the public to perceive that it it's coming from the government. They want to use it as Sort of, uh, they want the American citizens to see it as coming from individuals to be like, "Oh, well, look, individual citizens and organizations are anti-communist." Um, that it's not just being fed to them as as, as government propaganda. Um, and so, so the state-private network um, really gets funded a lot of it through the CIA. Um, and actually, as a side note, my grandfather worked for the CIA in the fifties through. No Yeah. And I've actually, I sort of have asked him about, well, I said, oh, I have a good friend that publishes book. Did you know, do you know anything about how the CIA helped to bring over athletes after 1956? And he just was like, no, I don't know anything about that.
2: (laughs) Right. No no comment. (laughs) Right. Right.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I'm like, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm sure he knew about it. I don't know where he worked within it, but that's like all I know. Um, Okay, so the state private network, right? So it was like this idea that the CIA was going to start implementing sort of policies and actions through private organizations. And one way they did this was through, they created these committees called like the Free Europe Committee was one of them, Radio Free Europe, which a lot of people familiar with that are funded by the government that are CIA sort of front organizations. Um, And then so that's one way that they're doing it. And then they're also doing it by reaching out to people who they knew are anti-communist. So, for example, the um, head of Time and Company, which owned and ran Life magazine, Time magazine and later Sports Illustrated, is Henry Luce or Looch. I never know how to say his last name.
2: You know better than us, so we're okay. gonna go through everyone.
1: <laughs> okay. okay. So I'll say Luch. So he is like a huge anti-communist and he knows Eisenhower. He knows Alan Dulles, who is the director of the CIA. Um Luch is actually he's part of the Free Europe committee. Um so he is very heavily connected to the CIA. There's another individual by the name of C. D. Jackson. Um, who um, ends up starting Sports Illustrated in 1954. So again, 1950s era um, um, sort of endeavor. And he also knows Dulles. He also knows Eisenhower. And 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 he actually is consulted by the government. Uh, he's considered by the government to be a Cold War propaganda expert. So you have these people that are so tightly connected with the government who are very anti-communist. And... Um, and so they sort of start, the CA starts working through these networks. So these seemingly, pro, these private, I guess, officially networks, but, you know, have very deep connections to the government. Um, and then the other part of it that I, I mentioned um, on Twitter in response to your, your tweet about this article is that. The refugee, like emigrate communities from Eastern Europe have a huge role in this as well. Um, A lot of them came over in like the 30s. A lot of them came over after 1948. And a lot of them came over over after 1956. And each successive wave kind of has its own political sort of cultural background. But there are people ranging from like people from the Habsburg Empire that have like um, aristocratic titles such as count um you have people that are like we like middle class business owners whose properties were torn from them from the communist government so you have sort of these various individuals and there's a couple individuals who helped to create it's called the Hungarians uh Hungarian Sports National Federation the HSNF sorry i have a problem with acronyms sometimes <laughs> um, and and so what happens in 56 is that um, these individuals in the the Hungarian uh, Sports National Federation, um, they are very, they have money, they are very highly connected. Also, they start realizing once the Hungarian Revolution is happening, like, oh, the Melbourne Olympic Games are in a month, the Hungarian Olympic team is supposed to be there, and they're seeing the revolution be crushed and fall apart, and they're saying we need to do something to maybe help. And one way we could help is to bring athletes over here. And so they have like this dinner party. Toby talks about, they have this like dinner party where they invite over an editor from Sports Illustrated that they're friends with. And they're like, we would like to bring, we would like to bring over some Hungarian athletes to the U.S. and help them defect. Like, do you think Sports Illustrated would be interested in helping us? Um, And so like, sure enough, this sort of tentative plan gets sort of like passed up passed up the food chain. So the impetus sort of starts from these emigres, which is interesting, and and these emigre communities, there's a lot of really interesting research that they have their own ideological goals as well. They're also trying to like rally anti-communist support and funding to boost their own political and cultural positions in the West. So there's a lot of interesting scholarship there, but they very gradually convince um, sort of people at Sports Illustrated, Time Magazine, and then the CIA, Um, they start sort of all start working together covertly. Um, now it happens really slowly because the CIA and the state department has to sort of work out like asylum and paperwork and this and that. And there's a lot of, a a lot of disagreement about whether they should bring over athletes and give them special help because this isn't something that the, that the American government does, right? They're so anti-communist that they're like, this isn't something we can do. This is communist, Mm um, so Sports Illustrated, so but they eventually sort of agree to go along with it, and Sports Illustrated and New York uh, New York Times, I think, and a couple other magazines decide, and, and, and uh, news outlets decide to give CIA operatives like a cover to go over to Melbourne, and then also Sports Illustrated correspondents and these guys and the the Hungarian uh, National Sports Feder Sports National Federation, they go over there and they essentially start like contacting athletes one by one and in groups and talking to them about defecting. And they, and they eventually, it's like very piecemeal. Like they pick an athlete here, they pick up an athlete there. They talk to a couple of people here and there. So it's very piecemeal. And like, it takes the government a long time to like decide, like, for sure we are going to allow them to have asylum. We're going to allow them to bypass like immigration restrictions. And, and I should say also, this is also when the 200 plus thousand people perhaps like your parents, uh, uh, family, Nathan, were trying to come over, they're going over into Austria and Yugoslavia. So it's kind of like pandemonium, like, what are we going to do with all these refugees? But at the same time, we want to bring them over here because they can be propaganda tools, right? Like, we're gonna politicize these refugees. And that's why they're given like a free pass. Like, and the American government does the same thing with the with the Cuban refugees too. I mean, the Cuban refugee crisis is a little bit different, but they're also given more of sort of a free pass than immigrants from say Mexico or Venezuela, right? You know, even today. Um, so, um, so that's sort of how the CIA gets involved in Sports Illustrated. Um, it's, it's like, such a fascinating story, and it's one of those things that seems like like a spy novel or something.
0: This is, like, one of the more fascinating, like, bits of history that we've, I think, gotten on this show. Like, that just kind of blew my mind. I have, um like, a, a bunch of questions I feel like we can do maybe, a, like, an entire podcast on that. But I kind of want to change, segue a little bit into your own bio, because I really... Um, I'm fascinated by not only your history, um, but also like just your entire biography. I'm really interested in hearing about some of your experiences as a D1 swimmer. Um, Sort of a a common theme of this podcast has been to explore the exploitation of athletic labor. And I'm sure you've picked up on that. Um, I'm curious of whether or not our discussions previously about um the exploitation of athletic laborers resonate with you. Did you like feel exploited during your career as a as a swimmer, and if so, how?
1: Yeah, so I'm really glad that you asked this question. Um, and I guess I want to preface it by saying, and people that sort of know me on Twitter like know me personally i've I've talked about this a little bit, but not terribly too much um just in this and i just want to preface it that i'm going to be talking about like sexual harassment and abuse um and perhaps about homophobia if there's time um and so just like a little bit of like a trigger warning that this could be really triggering for people that experience this um and i also want to say like i'm not asking for sympathy um when i've told people this like the default and understandably so is to express sympathy but like that's not what i'm asking for like i really just sort of want to share this information because like knowledge is power. Um, and I guess what I want to say is like, so you all have, yeah, you all have covered in other episodes, how it's exploit, how, um, sport and you all focus a lot on college sport is very exploitative. And I guess what I'll say is that like sport is abusive and exploitative at like a lot of different levels. Right. And, And it's, it's not just the NCAA and it's not just pro sport. Um, and those two tend to get the most news, um, but it's, and it, 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 I, I would, I would say at almost every single level. Um, and and I'm going to focus on the sexual harassment and abuse just because that's simply what I know. Um, swimming is not one that generates a lot of money, so um, I guess I never had. I mean, when I was little, I wanted to go to the Olympics, but like I never had aspirations that that would be like a career that would make a lot of money. So it's like different. And um, Dr. Jackson has talked very um uh, compellingly, and I agree with her point that like well swimming is one of the white sports that gets subsidized by predominantly black athletic labor so like i acknowledge that as well Mm -hmm. um but um and i'll say too um that like i was very fortunate to like i was never like directly like sexually abused i was never touched so like my stories to some people probably seem really like soft um which i like i'm lucky and i feel very fortunate about um and other women and athletes of all genders have experienced much 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 worse but i think it is useful to focus on like the not so bad cases to sort of show how 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 it's not just all like the nassers of the world right mm-hmm. um even though they exist um and so um there are a couple ex- examples i'll try to be as brief as possible Um, one was, so I swam club for about 10 years in Virginia. Um, and then, and then I was D1. So even in like club swimming, like the, the sexual harassment, I swam in the the 1990s and I graduated, uh, high school in 2004. So like 1994 to 2004 was sort of, I guess, yeah, that was sort of my like era when I was doing club swimming. Um, and swimming is one of those sports where it's co-ed. Um, especially club swimming, the men and the women swim together. It's usually not separated, um, which in a lot of ways is great. Like I really thrived off of like beating the male athletes, which is a very like patriarch, like I hate saying that, but that was just something that I kind of thrived off of, even though I probably shouldn't have. So I loved swimming with the other um, male swimmers my age and older. Um, But when I was, um, I think I was 15, I was swimming uh, with mainly boys. I mean, there were a few other female athletes. And um, there was always a lot of really perverted talk and discussion and you know, as someone who like wanted to sort of fit in and prove that I fit in, which is like really dumb when I think about it, I would sort of like laugh along or whatever. And, um, but there was an incident one day when um, there was like a clearly an inside joke that was being passed around and I didn't know what it was and they were tossing around a word. And I didn't know what it was, and I was like, "Oh, like, what are you talking about? What is this? What is that?" And 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 I should emphasize, these were like boys that I swam with twice a day in the summers, every single, every like for years. I swam, I mean, I swam twice like twice daily with them throughout all of high school. But in the summer, like you went to doubles every single day, whereas during the school year you maybe swam twice a day, like three times a week, and then every other day, once a week. Um, so it was a very intense environment, and like I consider these men my friends. And so lo and behold, I find out that uh, the word that they were that they were using um, is the word chode, um, which is um, you can look it up. I'm not going to I'm not going to say what that is, um, but it was poor. And they were using that to refer to me and my body and the bodies of a couple other uh, female athletes that were my size on my body. I wasn't a super lean athlete. That's not my body type. That's never who I was. Um, but I, once I found out what it was, I was totally horrified. Um, my coach, my male coach heard about it and I remember going home crying. And like I said, these were like boys that I trusted, boys I was friends with. One of them was in my carpool. Um, and I was totally horrified and like nothing was done about it. Um, I mean, I remember my mom getting really pissed and being like, we can quit, like whatever you want to do. But like the idea of like. Going to the coach and like filing a complaint was like never ever thought of. I certainly never thought about it. My parents never thought about it. Um, And I remember I think I missed like a day of practice, but I went back to it because like I wanted to prove that like they weren't going to get me down, right? Like I can tough it out. I wanted to be this tough person that it didn't Mm -hmm. really bother me. Whereas now it would be like, oh my God, take a week off. Like talk about your options. Who are we going to talk to? How are we going to address this? Um, I'm so sorry. You know, like it really was none of that. Um, And, and, you know, they called my, some of my girlfriends, plenty of other really awful names too. So I was not alone in this. Um, And then I had another incident um, senior year in high school where I was at a swim meet. And uh, when um, the, the types of swimsuits that we wore, um, there are these suits called fast skins or they, they, at the time they were called fast skin suits that the technology has advanced a lot since then. But it was this idea that the like fabric of the suit—it was super tight—and the fabric of the suit would somehow give you like some kind of edge in the water. And I don't know all the technical specs of it, um, but they were really expensive suits, like a couple hundred dollars, and you could only wear them like a, a, like 12 or 15 times before the like fabric technology wore off. But because they were so expensive, you would like try to wear them a lot, right, to maximize your purchase. Um, well, I was at an outdoor swim meet, it was like my last swim meet, uh, before I went to college, so I was excited to be with my friends, just kind of celebrate one last time with them, and it was in Florida, we had flown down to Florida, to Fort Lauderdale for this big swim meet, and I'm getting ready to swim an event, and I noticed that, like, a bunch of my teammates in the side of the pool are, like, pointing at me and laughing, and I was just kind of, like, in the zone, thinking about my race, and, like, I had my headphones in, and I'm like, oh, they must be laughing at something behind me, like, whatever. I get out of the pool and I find out that they're laughing at me because my suit is see-through and it was my coach who pointed it out. And it's like similar thing where like I was horrified and like my, you know, my girlfriends, they all rallied around me and I was just like, this is bullshit. This is ridiculous. Um, I remember calling home and being really upset. I mean, like, I want to go home. I want to go home. And for whatever reason, I didn't go home. I don't, I don't, I kind of blocked it. I don't really remember. But just I was so pissed. But it was also like my last swim meet and I wanted to just have a good time with my friends. It's like whatever, you know, F you to my coach. Um, but you know, again, similar thing. Like, I never thought to report him. I never thought that like a uh, this needs to go up the chain. This is, you know, this is like so absurd um and you know this is this is club swimming and this was 2004 summer 2004 and this isn't even NCAA and I should also note that USA Swimming which is the um like umbrella um, organization for swimming in the USA did not start requiring coaches to have background checks until 2006 which is wild
2: it is it's so wild um Thank you so much for sharing that story, those stories with us. Um, You know, often the sort of notion of locker room talk, um, which I I discussed a little bit with Dirk Hayhurst in an earlier episode. You know, we think about it in the context of men's sports specifically and the sort of men's locker room and what kind of language takes place there. Um, But I mean, what you're really sharing with us is is a sort of, I guess, a more unusual context in the in terms of high performance sport, which is a sort of co-ed dynamic um, and just really how toxic that becomes and how um, all of these speech acts, like the incredible, powerful impact they have on people's lives, right? And identities and everything else. Um, and these are in such formative moments and sport is so central to one's identity in these moments. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's impossible to um, to downplay just how, how, powerful those moments are Um, and and so one thing that comes to me especially after you're talking about coaching here right yeah you have actually worked as a coach for seven years in fact right Uh, as Mm -hmm. a swim coach and and that's something that frankly it always um it just interests me in general this if for a person who has a critical disposition to sport right i'm not interested in this question for someone who does not have a critical disposition to sport because we know very well what coaching looks like and the harm it can do Um, And and my feeling is the sort of hegemonic mode of coaching that exists in high-performance sport cultures is akin to abuse, essentially. Uh, That's my view of it, and many will disagree with me. Um, But if one has a critical bent, that puts a person in a pretty challenging, I would say, situation, right? To to try to participate in this thing that you probably love in a lot of ways, um, and to try to nurture young people, which, I mean, you're an educator now. That's the career you've chosen, so that's obviously something that matters to you. Um, and yet this, these kind of cultures that you yourself experienced are teaching us to dehumanize um, and you know subordinate bodies and and everything else. How did you manage that kind of challenging uh position yeah
1: so i'm I'm so glad you asked it um <laughs> I guess I, I guess I should say that like when I started, I I started coaching, it was, I mean, it was like to make, to make money or whatever, but I just, I fell in love with it. And it's, I mean, there's so many similarities between being a coach and being an educator. I mean, you're educating, you know, you know, sport, that's part of what you're doing. And so I just, I fell in love with it. And it really, for so many years is such a passion. I kind of miss it now, actually. Um, But in terms of how do I kind of reconcile, and I think it was just, I think I just was so, um, so motivated to be like a positive force. Um, and, and I should say that when I coached, I always coached younger children. So it was always between the ages of like five to 11. So like kind of before they became teenagers in part, cause the teenager age is a challenge in and of itself. And it's just not one that I'm particularly, um, gifted at. Whereas I'm, I'm really great with kids and I just, I have so much fun with them, Um, And they also, they are just so unreserved and like their pleasure and just their enjoyment of it. Um, And so that was just something I really thrived on. And, you know, I really, I I, I didn't put the pieces together the way I do now. It was more like as situations arose, I kind of realized, oh, this is how I feel about it. And I feel about it because of my experiences in the past or like what I know from my education and from my research is like, this is what, People need this is what young people need to be able to thrive. And then it's not this like no-some game, win or lose. You're a failure if you don't win. It's like th- there are some useful skills you can learn from it, but at the end of the day, it is just sport and you're there to try to help them develop as a person. Um, so I was always like really close with a lot of my sport, a lot of my athletes' parents, and it helped because in a town like Gainesville where UF is so big, a lot of my athletes' parents were professors. Um, So like I had one one really close sport parent who was in the political science department, which was very close with history. Um, I have a sport parent that still texts me today to like update me on how her child is doing. And like, I haven't worked with her child since 2014 and it's 2020 and she's like entering, about to enter high school and she'll, or she's in high school and she'll text me about her. Um, But I think I just is really like, this is going to be a positive force for good. And it also was sort of an escape from academia, which can be really hard and really harsh and just really like be a really draining space sometimes. So for me to go out in the pool deck and like be in the sun, I love warm weather. And it was just like, was such a, was such a relief for me. Um, there were instances that arose, um, and I, I know we have other things we want to talk about, um, that arose like homophobia, where I was like, whoa, now I really know how I stand on things. And, th- and I feel comfortable as a coach speaking out against it because of my experiences, but also because it wasn't personal and I s- could see other people hurting. And for whatever reason, it's like easier for me to like, sort of speak up when I see other people hurting than when it's myself, I think, cause I just. I gaslight myself, but I don't do that to other people or something like that. Um, so, yeah, I just really saw it as like a, po- a, a like I'm going to be a positive force. And, and you know, a lot of coaches are male. And so I was going to be a positive female role model or fe- for a female mentor figure in an area in a sport that has a lot of women in it. Um, a lot of a lot of girls that are wearing very little and like, how do you build up their self-confidence when they're constantly looking at the mirror, being in a small suit, everyone's judging them. I mean, I heard countless comments from other coaches, not necessarily my team of like, oh, she, she clearly has hit puberty or, you know, she needs to lose weight. Things oh, that to God. me are just, you know, it's so toxic. It is so toxic. And I had parents that would come up to me and be like, I feel like my daughter or my son is getting chubby. And I just would be like, don't worry about it. Do not worry about it. Like they need to have a healthy relationship with food, they need a healthy relationship with their body, and you know this is coming from someone who, for a long time, didn't have either, and arguably is still struggling with both today. But again, it's easier for me to say to preach it rather than to kind of live it. Um, but just kind of seeing that in a way kind of firmed up my own beliefs, and then um, yeah,
2: you've highlighted something that we haven't really talked about, Johanna, but yeah the fat phobia that is rampant in sports culture, absolutely rampant, is still one of the most unsayable things in terms of critique. Um, so I'm, I'm just really I just wanted to sort of underline that for a second like it's It's really painful to hear you describing those comments which are perceived as utterly banal in the context of almost any sport. Um, I can see how in swimming that's really heightened because of the kind of uh, the uniform and entire situation, obviously. Um, but I mean like this, this is the kind of toxic culture, right? There's just so many tentacles to it.
1: Well, and well, actually, one thing that I'll say is that, you know, like I look back at these experiences and like, I was no saint. So, so for example, when I heard them call me that name in high school and I realized they were referring to me and some other women, my, one of my, this is horrible, but one of my default, like thoughts in my brain was like, well, I don't look like them. Why are you looping me in with them? Which is terrible. That is so fat phobic. And it's so so like I, I look back and there are things that I know I said, and I did that was contributing to it. And as a coach, I know I said plenty of times, you know, like, boys, don't let the girls beat you, which is terrible. Mm -hmm. You know, like, that's just reinforcing toxic masculinity, all these awful things until like, someone said something to me one day and I was like, oh my God, this is terrible. Like I just, it was so ingrained in me. And again, like I kind of thrived off it. Like, look, I'm beating the guys. So, you know, it's such like a work in progress. And like, I look back and, you know, I I think kind of critiquing what I did in some ways kind of helps me work through it a little bit, which maybe that's odd, I don't know. But um, yeah, so I think good point about the the fat phobia. And a sport like swimming, I'm sure gymnastics, ballet right all of these sports where it is all about your body type i just think it's it's absolutely
0: there when i reflect back on my own experiences in in athletics i i like sometimes really i really hate myself what i did in certain contexts throughout my like adolescence and 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 early i guess adulthood and the things that like i contributed to in a variety of ways as well um in terms of like just the rhetoric of toxic masculinity that was just everywhere in sport, kind of all around me, but you've shared with us, and I'm very grateful that you have shared with us uh, all these experiences of, of harm that you were subjected to. And I'm, I'm curious of how of whether or not and how um, they've informed your scholarship, your pedagogy and your overall views of elite sport. I can't so
1: much draw a straight line, but I think, like, as I've kind of developed my own sort of academic um, persona or kind of confidence in my academic identity, I've sort of been able to draw these threads much more so than I did when I was in graduate school and things like that. But I I really think that when it comes to um, scholarship, like really just like the listening to the athletes and like, being willing to ask difficult questions, which, which can be hard. And, and Nathan, I'm sure you can speak to this. It's hard to know what questions are crossing a line. And when there's like a cultural barrier, like you got to tread really carefully, but like you sort of, you sort of have to know how to build that trust. And it's something that I'm not always great at and I'm still like constantly working on it. Um, But I think just like listening to athletes voices and like believing their stories, um, which Some people might interpret that as like, oh, believing the like white athlete stories, which is like, that's not necessarily what I'm talking about, unless it's like, you know, dealing with abuse or or kind of racism or something like that. Then, you know, I think I think those stories are they're absolutely warranted. But I think just listening to like what they have to say um, and like really taking those stories seriously and not just seeing them as like anecdotes. Um, and like those voices have power, and like really amp- like amplifying them, and that's something that fortunately we're seeing right now. I guess for better for worse, like people kind of get that right now, because of uh, Colin Kaepernick and Megan Rapineau and all you know all these other people. Um, but that really has not been the case. I mean, in the '60s and the '70s, during the athlete activist movement, it was. But that was like such a rare moment and there's just so many moments in which like athletes voices have been like disregarded and you know um subverted and silenced and all these things so i really think um that's that's what it is um and i would say similarly when it comes to pedagogy it just is like i really want to like empower students to like Um, listen to their own voices and not just like be willing to like accept or how do I say not be willing to just fold their own experiences into whatever dominant narrative their lives sit within and then similarly to like always be asking like who is left out like when we read a passage about the conquistadors you know conquering you know the new world who like, like even the word conquistadors, that's -hmm. such a romanticized term. Like they were invaders, they were colonizers, Yes. you know, they brutalized people. Like, so it's all about the language. And so like, what is left out? Um, And like athletes voices are left out. So many, so many voices, so many histories are left out. So I think like, that's a a huge thing for me. And like, and like, okay, when you see that as someone who's not from that community, what can you do to advocate them and and from a historical sense, that means focusing on them, listening to their voices, finding alternative modes of um, of of sources and things like that, or different approaches and methods. Um, but that's really, I think pedagogically speaking, it's that. Um, in terms of attitudes towards sports, you know, it's made me so wary of sports, the structure of sports, whether it's club sports, Olympic sports. NCAA, even pro sports, right? Like the athlete is never the priority. Yeah. I mean, in any notion of the term, their bodies, their physical and mental, emotional, mental, emotional well-being, their financial well-being. It is almost never a priority. Um, And I mean, there are so so, for example, like and my friends on Facebook for a while probably were really sick of me. But when all of the news was coming out about Nassar and about other Instances of abuse from coaches and other people. I was constantly like sharing these articles saying like, "Don't trust your coaches." And this was when I was a coach. Right. Um. I'm like, and and for example, like parents would ask me like, "Oh, can you give my swimmer a ride home?" And I'm like, "No, I cannot. Like, no. I know I'm a female, so you may seem that I am more trustworthy, and like, I appreciate that you're showing that trust. But like, no." that is not trustworthy. That is where scary things happen. Um, fortunately, not to me. Like, thank God, not to me. I'm so lucky in that respect. But um, just be be really wary. And then, I, I mean, I think that's kind of it. I mean, I think like there's still things such as like goal setting, hard work, stuff like that. But those things in the media and how the culture is portrayed, they're portrayed as like far outweighing everything else. And they mm-hmm. don't.
2: That's it. That's absolutely right. Well, Johanna Mellis, uh, this has been really a pleasure for both Derek and I I know I can speak for Derek in saying that um, we could keep going on and on. And I got to say we're going to have to at some point, Uh, this can't be the last we hear from you on this show. Thank you so much for taking the time to break down, not just the history of uh, communist sport and how it compares to the U S sport in the fifties and sixties, but really, talking through sports culture with us in general thank you
1: absolutely thank you guys so much this was such such a pleasure and and i have to say you all made me feel very comfortable and talking about this which is not an easy feat so kudos to you all for kind of creating your own this this culture within the podcast in such a damn short period of time <laughs>
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Sport Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please feel to like, share, and leave a review. And as always, you can reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod.